not really for what, you know, you did, but really because you got caught. You ever, like, thought, ugh, I would have been really happy had I not been caught. I mean, you know, all would have been well. Maybe you hated the consequences of your sin, but not the sin itself. I mean, that's kind of a common theme if you look at your life at times. You might see many of those moments, even moments where you were heartbroken over the consequences. Sometimes it would be with someone maybe close to you, you hurt someone, or you were personally hurt by it, and the weight of that made you feel guilty and somewhat like sorry. But the question might be for us today is kind of to ask ourselves, what is the difference between being sorry and repenting before God? I mean, that, that's something that is posed here because we can feel like there are times I've even met with people that they are like, I'm so depressed, I'm so overwhelmed by what's taking place in my life. And you're saying to them, like, but look what you're doing. Like, the road that you're on is depressing. It is going to end up in destruction of your family or your life or whatever. And you say, of course you feel really bad. But they don't feel like bad in the sense of like, a God-driven repentance. Repentance is more than just feeling bad. True repentance is a work of God in your life that moves you beyond a feeling bad and gives you a change of heart. It, it causes you to want to abandon sin. It causes you to agree with God about sin and long for righteousness. Repentance is a transformation that takes place that is brought about by the Spirit of God that causes one, again, to agree with God. So therefore, you would hate sin and walk in His ways. It is turning to God and turning away from sin. When you've experienced true repentance, you start thinking like God and trusting in His ways, and you see them as right and good. It's really, you could say, when you stop trusting in the wrong things to bring you hope, joy, satisfaction, and security, and start trusting in God to satisfy you, then you have experienced, really, a genuine faith, followed by a heart of repentance. That's kind of maybe the way you could describe that. We've been uh, working through uh, the period of the, uh, I mean, or we have in the past, but we've been kind of talking about it and then kind of leading us through the end of the period of the judges about to kind of move into the monarchy and what you found out like if you studied the book of judges which we did in the past was there was this cycle of sin and the sin was that the people uh, were really enjoying the way the scripture says whoring after other gods they were delighting in doing that and then what happened was that God gave them over to what they worshipped and loved and treasured above him. And then they were like overtaken by the people that had kind of presented those gods to them. And they kind of go into this downward spiral where they become enslaved to those people. And then after a period of slavery, 
they cry out to God and they say, God, deliver us. And God would raise up a judge. The judge would live for a period of time. The people would semi kind of worship God. As soon as the judge was gone, they would start back in that cycle. So it was almost like this. We feel sorry when we're in trouble, but we don't really want to be changed. We don't even really want to serve God. We just don't want all the trouble that comes with not serving Him. You ever felt that way in your life? I mean, where you look back and say, wow, this cycle is going on. I'm not seeing uh, any true change. At the end of the period of Judges, the Scripture says there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so God is setting them up for a monarchy, and that is a good thing. It was already spoken of in the past, but, but in this process, we're watching them kind of on the edge of this period of the Judges where you're saying everything is broken. There needs to be this new day to dawn, and that's kind of where we are. Now, in First Samuel um, chapter 7, I mean, in, in chapter 7, I think about verse 3, there was this 20-year period of lament. And, and you could say, uh, there, maybe there was a state of brokenness, but really it's probably even speaking of the time of Samuel where he is calling the people to turn back to God and to turn away from their wickedness. But the question really becomes, did they really repent? And that's kind of where we are, or do they just feel bad? And so Samuel says, put away your foreign gods. Probably he's been doing that for years. And then after, as a result of that, we see God give them deliverance from the Philistines. Now, this is followed by something that's kind of like, that looks good. Like you're like, Okay, I see true repentance in their heart. They're putting away the gods. All is well. Well, when you get to chapter 8, you find out that they want a king. And it's almost like they dealt with those idols of the land, and now they've made an idol out of the monarchy. And they want a king like the other nations because they feel like that they're really not very secure if they don't have a king like the other nations. And so they're warned, and they say, no, we want the king. And in, in a way, you could say, it's like they move from finding their security in the ark, which was kind of a false thing. They feel sorry for it. And then there's kind of this time of maybe repentance, and then they turn to a new idol, and that's the monarchy that's going to save them. They're always kind of pushing God away. Have you ever found yourself like fighting against a particular thing in your life that you know is destructive? And you think, I've won the war on that. Only to turn and find yourself running after another thing that you're trying to find security in. And you almost feel like you move from step to step to step to all of these things and you're just looking for that. And I've watched this in people's lives before where they'll say, oh, I just want to graduate college. Or parents will even say, I just want them to graduate college. And, it's like, and then I just want them to get, get married. And then I just want them to have children. And then I just want... 
the children to leave, you know, and it's like you move from one step to the next and you think none of those things that you're so focused on, that you so dream about, they never really satisfy. And so as soon as they're done, then you got to grab something else and you're always looking for something to satisfy you that will never truly satisfy you. And that is the struggle in our lives because we're always looking for God replacements instead of looking for God. And it's a struggle for all of us. And oftentimes, it's the result of a low view of God. And we saw that in Israel's history, and we even see that in Samuel. So we're going to kind of pick up today, and we're going to think about what is taking place. We're going to think about repentance and what that looks like. And we're also going to look and, and say, what does like sh- the shifting of different idols look like in someone's life? And hopefully, uh, we'll come away and, and, and be able to grab some things that we can hold on to and be able to examine on our own lives and our church and where we are uh, together. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you're, we're looking at 2 through 17 here. Uh, we're we're going to see God like moving in a way. Uh, we're so thankful that Eli's family's gone and Samuel kind of comes into the picture. It's a grace to them. It's like a fresh thing that God has done. He's brought Samuel here. Samuel, we said, was a, a man that was humble before the Lord, and therefore uh, grace just came along with him, followed him. Mercy came with him. And so we saw him as an example of someone you want to say, he really seems to follow after the Lord. So in 7, 2 through 6 here, in 7, 2, they've been through that kind of time of being humble before the Lord at some level, lamenting, it says. And so Samuel wants to make sure that in a public way that they're really turning away from the things that they've trusted in. And so in 1 Samuel 7, 3, he says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods. It's like you've got to set those aside. God is not going to be one among many. He alone, he is a jealous God he alone, he, he wants complete and absolute allegiance. And so here we, we see they put, them, they put those away in verse 5 and 6. There's kind of a renewal of that relationship with God. And really, you're seeing something of an, a tangible way that you're seeing someone walk away from idols. And that is really important. It's not, it's, um, man, and I think I've told you this before. I met with a guy one time. And I was saying that he, he was like, I, man, I just feel bad and I know I've done some wrong and all this kind of stuff. And I just, I, I've heard about Jesus. I want Jesus, you know. And, and I, there was this point where I, I was talking through that with him that I realized that like he wanted to add Jesus on, but he wanted to hold on to everything else. And it was like this face-to-face kind of moment where I was like, turning to Jesus is turning away from those other things. And, and he was like, man, I got, I got to think about that. And he never called me again, you know. But there was this tangible thing that comes along with turning to God. And that is, and you think about this in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, it says they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And really the Christian life is something 
constantly saying, where is my allegiance? Where is my allegiance? Where is my hope? Where is my trust? What am I living for? And you think about in that time period, uh, the Canaanite gods, there, and this one author wrote about this some, but he was just saying it was so hard, it had a, such a stronghold on anybody around those Canaanite gods because the Canaanite gods had, their worship was tied to like, sexual fulfillment kind of probably the best way to say that they combine the temple and the brothel all in one spot and so they thought for God the gods to bless us we have to go in and worship in this way and, and it was this most like pleasurable experience in a way they created these gods that would like kind of give in to the worst part of them of like indulging all kinds of fantasy and they go in there and say, there we go, this is what it means to worship God. So for them to break ties is really a supernatural thing that God has to do in their life. For them to turn away from that kind of idolatry and all the hope that comes with it and all the pleasure that was promised It was something big for him to call them to. And so in order to prepare them, he was saying, are you in faith trusting God and therefore turning away? And that's what you have to do. You have to to trust him. So we see that. We move forward. So then you kind of say, okay, they do this. First Samuel 7, 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out for us because in the midst of them turning to God, it kind of stirred up the Philistines because they met together. And the Philistines thought there was going to be a fight. And so they, in verse 8, they say to Samuel, listen, we have to be delivered. You have to intercede. Please pray for God's mercy. This is a lot different than what we saw in chapter 4. In chapter 4, they bring the ark out and say, like, we're going to force God to do this. In chapter 7, they're just crying out for mercy. They're praying before the Lord. They're crying out for Samuel to intercede. It's a lot different uh, picture here. Their only weapon here really is prayer. And if you look at the history of Israel, that's always their only hope. It's like God strips them of any kind of thought that they could stand up and fight for themselves. They bow before him and cry out for mercy. Have you ever struggled with that where you said like, I I want to get any, any, if I'm in a real difficult situation, you, you might try all different types of things before you really get to your knees. And seek the Lord and beg Him for salvation. Beg Him to rescue you. You know, there's something about this even that points us to Jesus. Because that's really, He is the intercessor. I go before Him. He, he, I know that He is interceding on my behalf as the great high priest who is rescuing us. And that's really where God wants us. So in the midst of this, first we kind of get to this place of preparation. Then they're in this place of like, we can't save ourselves. They cry out for mercy, which is really the picture all along. And then Samuel's going to say, all right, I want to memorialize, you know, make a memory of this or memorialize this. I want you to remember this. And so in verse 12, he says, it says that, he sets up a stone and calls it Ebenezer, for it says, till now the Lord has helped us. 
He's going back. He's saying like, listen, all of God, the past, every time, every time that we are just trusting the Lord, every time that we've found ourselves just totally and absolutely dependent upon Him, every time we have this heart of worship, a heart of just total reliance on Him, what we've seen is He's never failed us. And so they set up this stone to remind them, and not just them, it was the generations to come so that they could see this and understand it. Jonathan and Joanne uh, told me about a book called Unbroken. Maybe some of you have read it, maybe you watched the movie. It's about an Olympic runner who was also a soldier in World War II. He was shot down. He ended up in a Japanese prison camp. And finally, against all odds, he survives. That, that's the whole kind of story. And really, his biography is something for us to remember. It's, not, it's to remember the war. But, but, and it also is a reminder of, because he becomes a believer looks back on those experiences in, in, in faith, trusting that God was working in his life through all that. And, and, and we go back to those moments and you say, in every kind of biography, especially with a Christian, they're, they're looking at that and they're saying, God has helped us. God has sustained us. God kept us. A biography's that way and sometimes even... Like if you've been to a museum, like a, a, a World War II museum, like in New Orleans, you go there and you say, it, it's, it helps us understand where we've never been before, but, but we're able to see it. And, and, and I remember even seeing like the Holocaust Museum. And when you're able to see that and understand that, it takes you to a place that you've never been before, but you want to learn from. And so that is something you see um, generation after generation, there's something of every week taking the Lord's Supper as a to remember, to, to remember what has been done for us as a reminder of God's help in the past that carries to today and will carry us into the future. We need that. You see, and so in this whole story, we're seeing them, the, the, the picture kind of on display is the way it ought to be, is that we see God's glory and understand His greatness, and we are really at this place where we're saying like, we cry out in mercy, and we know that He delivers, and then we remind ourselves of that over and over and over again whenever we have a tendency to trust in some false system, false deity, false hope. So, we finish chapter 7, and we just, he just kind of says, this is what Samuel's been doing. He has reproved and instructed and counseled Israel all of his life. And then you get to chapter 8, and when you get to chapter 8, you find out, that they want a king. That the people, they want a king. And partly, uh, it, this is tied to what was going on in Samuel's, with Samuel's sons. Samuel's sons, kind of like Eli's sons, were rebellious. 
And for whatever reason, uh, whether, you know, we don't hear much about like Eli seemed to kind of join in with his boy's rebellion. For whatever reason, uh, Samuel maybe didn't correct them or they were just rebellious and he tried. We don't know all the details of that. But one thing that he did with his boys was he put them as judges, even though they were these rebellious men, which is a frightening thing to think of. And, and we talked about that, how some parents have a tendency to allow their children to live in such a way that is not honoring to God, or you could say even maybe um, they, they, they kind of just allow them to kind of continue in rebellion and act as if it doesn't exist. Some, some parents can't see their children for who they are, and it's kind of a frightening thing. But it, this is one of those things where you say, okay, this is the situation. Now they want a king, and they are longing for that. And why would they want a king? That's going to be the issue. Why do they really want a king? And we'll look at that and see kind of what's taking place. So in chapter 8, I want you to look at verse 7 and 8. The people have requested a king. And the Lord said to Samuel in verse 7, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. He says, Samuel, don't take it personal. The king is not just a substitute for you, but it's a substitute for me. We've kind of moved from chapter 7 where we're like, oh my goodness, Israel's learned. Israel sees now. They, they need to cry out for God's mercy. God's their only deliverer. God's really the only uh, God. That, that's all they can trust in. They, they need to just cry out to mercy before Him. They need to live in humble faith and, and follow the Lord. That, let's just do that. But then you get to chapter 8 and you say, hold on just a second. They're crying out for a king. But the issue is going to be like, is that, that's not all bad. But what are they really longing for here? And God says they are longing for a God replacement. They think of the monarchy as their savior. They are putting their faith in that. You know, Moses said in Deuteronomy 17 that there's going to come a day where you're going to want a king, and that's permissible. God had been setting them up for that. But the issue is the kind of king that you want. They're, they're really wanting the, this king that is like the nations. They want a king that will look just like the world, that, that will kind of save them like the kings of the world would and and would be proud and great in, in the eyes of everyone someone they could kind of point everybody to and say hey that's our king you know that, that's our king you see him God said the kind of king that they should want would be a king after his heart and in Deuteronomy we see that it, it's the king after his heart would not be one who takes, but rather one who gives. Not one who is seeking to be served, but rather one who serves. 
Not one who makes his own rules, but one who lives under God's rules. But this is not what they are looking for. What are they looking for? Why are they looking for it? Maybe possibly there's an impatience among the people. And again, secondly, which is the most important, there is a desire for the wrong type of king. Davis says, it is not the monarchy, but trust in the monarchy that is the villain. It's just, it's like, again, they went after another God. Before they used the ark as something that they would say, oh, bring that out, it will deliver us. And now they're saying like, let's get the monarchy, it will deliver. So, chapter 8 is contrasted with chapter 7. Instead of leaning into God with, by repentance, prayer, and hope, in chapter 8 we see something different. It is leaning into something that is a substitute God instead of trusting in God. Do you ever struggle with that? Do you ever have those God substitutes? Do you think the church ever struggles with that? Have you ever watched people around a particular spiritual leader And they're just like, you know, he touched me, you know, or no, or whatever, you know. But like, it's, (laughs) this is funny. My dad, my dad knew this guy that was uh, really thought the world of Billy Graham. And I I think that's great. You know I mean? But he he did, and he was in the ministry and, and, you know, Billy Graham was the example, you know, uh, in a way. And one day, uh, that guy happened to get to meet Billy Graham and like he shook hands with him. And he's like, I'm not even going to wash this hand. You know? It's like, what? what? Gonna, well, he, I, I shook his hand. You know, like he spoke to me. You know, whatever. But people are constantly wanting to make gods out of leaders or systems or whatever. I mean, there's all of these substitutes where you want this thing to to save you, to rescue you. And sometimes even when we try to say, well, what do we need to do? You know, a church might say, what do we need to do to get like better or be in a better place? And there's all this thought about how we can like do all the things that we can do to bypass the need to like just fall on our faces before him. It's like it's easy to find a seek a substitute. Even in our personal lives, it's easy to do that. All of us know those ways that we do that, a tendency toward that. So, these people have a desire for a substitute God in a way. And they've got in their minds how that will work out. Why do they want that? Because it's hard to be different. You know that? Like, sometimes it's difficult to be different. You're looking at all these nations, and, and, and sometimes, I'm sure, they would walk by and, and maybe see the Philistine temple, and they would see the Philistine, like, uh, the, the Philistines, like, the king's quarters or whatever, the palace, and they would think, like, how could we ever stand against these people? I mean, like, we, we, I mean, can you believe that? Look at the building program he just put together. I mean, it's just, it's so appealing. I just, it's so beautiful. It's so amazing. It's like you go into like their capital city and it's, man, are you joking me? 
This is great. Like, that's what we need. I mean, even though they've just seen God, like, without them picking up a sword, destroy their enemies. And even though they saw with the Egyptians, without them fighting anything, God destroyed the Egyptians. They're watching him every time they find themselves in total hopelessness. They watch God show that those gods are nothing. They know what happened when they took the ark and just put it in the temple with the Philistines God. And the God the next morning is on its face. And then they go and pick their God up and the next day his arms and head are gone. And it's like, are you kidding me? Why do you want that? Because you don't always want to be distinct. You don't want to be this separate people that, that really feel out of place. And Israel's whole life could be like that. They wanted a king because they wanted something to make them feel normal. They did not want to be left behind when the culture was moving so fast. And the thought of being left behind frightened them. What does Samuel say? You want the king, it will be costly. You want the king, it will cost you dearly. You want the king like the other nations, it will not be easy on you. Have you ever heard of taxes? Like that's what he's saying. Like really expensive, like to get this thing off the ground, it's going to cost. It's going to cost your kids. It's going to cost part of your farm. It's going to cost you greatly. You want your king. It will come at a price. Replacement gods cost a lot. They just do. They cost your energy. They cost your time. They cost you worry. They cost you all kinds of things. Replacement gods take people's lives every year. 1 Samuel 8.18 The Lord told Samuel to tell them, In that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Look at verse 19 and 20. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We need, we need a king like all the other nations. We need chariots and horses. You remember that in Psalm 20? Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Their heart here is revealed as they say, we need security and the only one that can provide us security is an earthly king. And so we have this idol called the monarchy and it will protect us and fight for us and show us how great we are. 
It was hard for Israel. I mean, at this moment and this time in their, where they were, there was no great temple and no great palace. They just had God. The one true and living God. That's all they had. And Israel, this tiny people, plus the eternal one true and living God, always equaled victory when they put their faith in him. But that's just hard to take because they had to trust in what they could not see and touch with their own hands. Would that bother you? Does that bother you? Does that bother you? Does it bother you that the eternal God has promised to be with you, to take care of you, to watch over you, but that He does not fit into the religious, social, and political structure that you want Him to? Is that hard for you? The king they wanted will take, take, take. And God had only been known as one who would give and give and give. So they hear these things and they say, even though they understand, they they hear it, they do not take it to heart. You almost are left to say, for any of us here to say, God, give me not only the ears that I can hear it, but that I would be able to really hear in my heart. Israel would go back and forth from wisdom to folly over and over. The wisdom of chapter 7 is followed by folly in chapter 8. It's kind of a frightening picture here. They can't seem to learn that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. They can't seem to see that all replacement gods will never do what only God can do. And we struggle with that. Because we have a tendency to misplace our trust. That, that's the struggle for us so often. And all of us here in different ways, we have these things that we'll say, if this is this way, then I will be filled with hope or filled with joy or be satisfied. And it's almost like we're going after those broken cisterns. It's, we're chasing after something that will never satisfy. It will only take and destroy. The, the idea here, I think, is look at chapter 7. Humbly trust God and He will deliver Start trusting in the things that promise deliverance. And they will bring destruction. And they will cost you more than you ever imagined. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good, that you are merciful, that you are gracious in our lives. That you satisfy us with every good thing. That sometimes the things that you keep us from, always, if you are keeping something from us, it is a sign of your mercy towards us.
We pray that we would not be given over to trust in the things that will not save. That we would not believe the promises of the enemy that if we would abandon you, that if we would just trust in the things made by human hands, that if we would just trust in man, that we would be rescued. But rather, create in us a heart to humbly serve you all the days of our life. In Christ's name, amen.